We are starting a new series today, and um, I'm looking forward to it a lot. This is um, this is a, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and I'm kind of a history history nut, so um, I think that you know when something has uh, that many zeros and you know even you know odd numbers of centuries in it. Um, you have to pay attention. You have to kind of say, what was that all about? And so I'm, I'm interested to talk about it because um, on October 31st, uh, 1517, Martin Luther, a um, Augustinian monk, nailed a list of 95 theological principles or theological debating topics on the, um, the door of the church uh, of Wittenberg Castle in Germany. He said, I would like to debate these things. And um, that basically did not turn into a debate. It turned into a 500-year-long debate. And uh, it's still going on today. And the reason that uh, it, it kicked off the... Or, or what, it, what it did is it kicked off what is called the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation um, is called that because uh, Martin Luther did not see himself as um, starting a new church. He didn't say, I'm going to start a church down the road here. It's called the Lutheran Church, and I invite you all to join me. That's not what he did. He said, these are uh, topics I would like to debate. I'm protesting my lack of understanding. I don't understand why the church teaches this when the scripture says this. I would like to have a debate and get to the bottom of this. He said, what I would really like to do is to reform the church because what I believe is the church has kind of wandered off the path and now we're, we're, we're lost somewhere in the woods and I want to get us back on track. So Martin Luther did not see himself as starting a new church. He said, I'm trying to reform the church, and I'm doing that by protesting my lack of understanding, my lack of agreement on these 95 issues. So uh, that's, that's, uh, that's how it all got started, um, but he didn't get the debate he wanted. He got that 500-year process that we're still a part of today. And that's really interesting um, if we're still a part of it. But... One of the things I hope to to uh, show during the course of this series is that we are still a part of it. This is not just something for the History Channel. Um, it's not just something, I think we've got some pictures. Um, it's not just something for a picture of, you know, good old Martin Luther nailing things to the wall. So, um, so yes, that's great, but it's not just something for a history book. I think there's one more. Yeah, so, um, so you see these pictures, um, and uh, it's great. That's that's kind of gives you an idea of what it might have looked like at the time. But was it just a historical uh, fact, or is it something that matters today? Well, that's something I'm going to uh, try to address during the course of this. But um, uh, today we're going to we're not going to look at all 95. I'll, I'll give you a break. Um, <laughs> we'd we'd be here for a long time. Um, and the truth is, a lot of those 95 aren't really an issue today. Um, some of you have been been here when we had our Thanksgiving. Um, we have our Thanksgiving ecumenical worship service uh, with the, the members of the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church down the street. And um, a couple of years ago, we were having that at the Lutheran Church, and they had finished some kind of a learning program. They had a study group that was doing something, and as part of that, they still had posted in their church those ninety-five theses on their church walls, and. Um, I, I went up to uh, Father Leo, the, the Catholic priest at the time, 
as he was kind of looking at them, kind of looking them over. And I said, you know, you know what, what do you think about that? Because, you know, it wasn't very diplomatic, I suppose. And he said, actually, no, uh, on, on the vast majority of those 95 things, we actually agree because the debate has been going on, both within the Catholic Church and within the Lutheran Church. There has been ongoing debate and a, a conversation about how we can reconcile because that's what we're called to do. Ultimately, Christians can never simply say, that's it, I'm leaving, I quit. We have to work for reconciliation. So it's a good thing that they have done that, and um, we're all called to do that. We we talked about that a couple of weeks ago in the area of racial reconciliation. But Christians are to be reconcilers. And so it's a great thing that of those 95, there's some handful that they still disagree on, but the bulk of them they have now come to some kind of a common understanding about. So what I want to do today, rather than talk about all 95, is to look at one of the key issues that came up um, that's really underlying a lot of those. And it's, it's this question. Who speaks for God? Who gives someone the authority to speak for God? I mean, God can speak for himself, right? If, if you're wondering about something, you're saying, you know, God, I need to have, I need to understand what you want me to do in this particular area. God can send an angel, right? Gabriel, you know, he's up there somewhere. Gabriel, go tell what, what my answer is. So that, that, that can happen and it has happened in, in, in scripture. We know that it has happened historically. God can start a bush on fire that burns without being consumed. God has ways of speaking to people that we know about from scripture. God can put a disembodied hand to write with its finger on the wall that says, we have been weighed in the balances and found, um, that we fell short. God has all kinds of ways he can communicate with us. But if you're waiting for God to do something like that, you may be waiting a long time because what we can tell from the historical record is that doesn't happen very often. More often, God is content to let human spokespeople speak on his behalf. And so the question then is who can do that? I saw it. Literally, I just saw this yesterday, um, but it happened in August. Um, for the first time in almost seven centuries, a group of Catholic clergy and theologians have sent what is called a filial correction to the Pope, saying that they, they think he's wrong on a set of issues um, related to the, the teaching of the Catholic Church on um, uh marriage and uh, remarriage after divorce and, and divorce. And they said, um, you have misinterpreted um, what you're teaching us about how to, how to, do, how to, do, uh, how to show Christ's love for people who have been divorced and remarried. And they called it a filial correction because what they're saying is, you're the boss, but you're wrong. And you know, you know Martin Luther said, let's have a debate and find out who's right. And so he didn't, he didn't have a filial correction. Martin Luther just said, let's debate this and get to the bottom of it. Uh, these Catholic leaders said, we want to, we want to inform you, you're still the boss, but you're wrong on this issue. And maybe some of you have done that at work, you know, uh, you know, you still pay, pay my, my paycheck, but you are wrong on this issue. And you can imagine it's something with some delicacy. So that's an issue that's a burning issue in the, the, um, Catholic churches is what does the Catholic Church teach about remarriage and divorce? In our own traditions, both the, the Presbyterian tradition and the Methodist tradition in which we stand, um, one of the issues that's, that's a big issue now for the last couple of decades and probably for 
the foreseeable future, is the issue of same-sex attraction and LGBTQ inclusion. What does God have to say on that? Now, if that's not your particular problem, maybe you really don't care. That's not my issue. I don't care what God has to say. But chances are somebody around you does. Somebody you know does, a neighbor, a family member. There's probably somebody who cares very much what God says about these issues. And the question is, who can speak for God? We saw just yesterday that um, there are people who think they can speak for God, and events have proven them wrong. Uh, some of you saw in the news there was a, a, a kook who thought that the world was going to end yesterday, and the, you know, this is a news flash, but the, the world did not end yesterday. We're still here. I saw somebody in the um, uh, uh, leader, Ed Stetzer, he said that this is a fake expert in a fake discipline who cooked up some fake apocalyptic news. And I think that that's what happened. So how do you know who to trust? I mean, you can come to me and say, hey, my niece just came out. What does the church have to say about that? But why should you believe me? What gives somebody the right to speak on behalf of God? How can humans speak on behalf of God? So that's the question that we're going to look at today. One of the, one of the major questions behind the, um, behind the Protestant Reformation. And the way we're going to look at that is first how the church has historically done that. And then we're going to look at some scripture and see those two in conversation. Who can you trust is the question and um, we're going to try to find out who you can trust. Historically, what the church has done is it's answered that question in one of four ways, or some combination of four ways. First of all, we've said, look to the Bible. That shouldn't surprise you. We're a church. Someone says, read your Bible. That should not surprise you. I think I've got a list of four items up there. Here, let's get them all in front of us. Okay, so the first one is the Bible. The second one is tradition. And by tradition, we don't just mean uh, we've always done it that way, but we mean this has been handed down, the kind of tradition that Paul talked about. He said, I didn't personally see all the things that happened. I didn't see the crucifixion. I didn't see the resurrection. But I was handed that tradition down. It was handed down to me by eyewitnesses, and I passed it on to you. And then later on in the letter to the Galatians, he said, if anybody challenges that tradition, then let them be cursed. Okay, so... Tradition is very important. At the time that Paul passed that on, there wasn't a New Testament. So they couldn't go look at their Bible. So tradition is very important. We also look to experience and reason. Experience means, well, I was there, and that's not the way I remember it. right? And then reason is, well, I wasn't there, but it seems logical to me that it would be this way. Now, I will tell you, our two denominations, the, the Methodists and the Catholics, actually, dis- uh, Methodists and Catholics, Methodists and Presbyterians, we disagree about those last two, um, which makes sense. If we agreed on everything, we wouldn't be two separate denominations, right? So what we're trying to do is figure out how to get along together, uh, like the Lutherans and Catholics. We're trying to figure out how can we agree to disagree on some important issues. So Methodists uh, put a high value on experience and reason, uh, pro- uh, Presbyterian Protestants tend not to put as much um, emphasis on those two. But we also agree, we disagree on the first two. We disagree on how we see the relationship between the Bible and tradition. So what I want to do is I want to look at um, an example that, that teaches us, that sheds some light on that topic from the Scripture. So we're going to look at Mark in chapter 7. Jesus um, is teaching... 
and um, the, uh, the, the critics show up. It says, one day some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. Now, they came to see Jesus, but they noticed what his disciples were doing, and so they told Jesus about it. This is saying, you must not be much of a teacher because your students still haven't learned the age-old tradition. So it says, uh, they noticed his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand-washing before eating. And then Mark has a lengthy explanation. The Jews do this and the Jews do that, right? He's explaining the way that the Pharisees have this tradition of washing their hands. They're not washing their hands to remove dirt. No one knew about germs in those days. And you notice when they buy food from the market, they don't wash the food. They only wash their hands. Because this is about removing not dirt, but sin. They want to make sure before you begin um, before you begin eating, you've washed the sins off your own hands. And that's this tradition. There's some questions on the program. If you want to dig into kind of where did that come from, how did they co- come up with that, there's some questions you can... You can dig into that in the um, the questions in the um, program. But Mark goes on. He says, So the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law asked him, Jesus, Why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. And Jesus says, You're right. I'll get right on that. No, Jesus says, Jesus says, You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied not just about people in general, but about you. These people honor me with their lips. Their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. He says, you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. And he says, let me give you an example. You skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. Now, before I read this next part, I want you to imagine a scenario. I want you to imagine a father and a son living in the same house, and one day the son says, you never let me do anything. And the father says, as long as you're under my roof, you'll do what I say. Okay, yes, I can imagine that's probably not as much of a stretch for some of us to imagine as it might be for others. But um, we can imagine that. So what does the son say? He says, I can't wait to leave. And so one day he does leave. And he goes out, strikes out on his own, and he finds out it's a little harder than he thought. And one day he prays a prayer. He says, God, help me succeed. Help me, help me find work. Help me find a job. Help me get through life. And I promise you, anything I don't need, just the basics to get through life, you know, food and shelter, I will give to you, God, because I just want to succeed and I would really like your help. So he makes a vow. He says, God, help me out. And then he grows and he matures and now he's somewhere in his 30s and he realizes he's been kind of a jerk. And so he goes to a priest and says, you know, in my youth I made a terrible vow. I vowed that I would, I would never help my parents, that, that I would give everything I made beyond what I had of my own, what I needed for myself, to God. Can I be released from that vow? Because it was a really stupid vow of a younger and foolish me. And the priest says, no, vows are important. You should not make a vow if you don't intend to carry it out. Now, in that sense, we might say, well, okay, he's learned an important lesson. But suppose mom is kind of trying to keep tabs on both father and son. And one day mom comes to the son and says, you know, I know you haven't been, you know, kind of keeping tabs on us, but 
I wanted you to realize your dad got hurt at work. A camel stepped on him, and he's hurt now, and he can't work. And we live in the first century, son, and there's no disability. There's no social security. We're hungry. Can you help us? Can you swallow your pride and help us? And he says, I can't. I've been to the priest already. I wanted to do that. And they told me I can't. That's the scenario that Jesus has in mind when he says this. He says, For instance, Moses gave you this law from God. Honor your father and mother. And anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, Sorry, I can't help you. For I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. Jesus says, there's other examples I could give you, but this is one that is just preposterous. You cannot come up with a tradition that lets you ignore the clear intent of the Ten Commandments. You know, this isn't some weird little thing somewhere in the book of Numbers that no one ever reads. This is the Ten Commandments. It says right there, honor your father and mother. How can you possibly overturn that with a tradition? Now, we can imagine how that tradition got started. It probably got started with the first half of that scenario. Some judge was facing a problem like that, and he said, your parents are doing fine. They don't need your help. Um, You should just suck it up. You should just have this vow on your conscience because that'll teach people not to make stupid vows. Maybe you won't make any more stupid vows. right? We can imagine that first judge might have done that. But when you pass it down, and you pass it down, and you say, well, that's the way I always was taught. When I went to legal training, they taught me this is how you deal with this problem. By turning a single case into a rigid tradition, they've removed the humanity from the equation. There's no more chance for mom to come and say, your father needs the money. There's no more openness to what God was really intending in his teaching on vows and in his teaching on honoring father and mother. Jesus says, you've overturned the law by this tradition. And this is the kind of passage, this is one of many passages that the Protestant reformers, people like Luther, looked at and they said, we cannot have tradition at the same level of Scripture. That Scripture has to be so far ahead of the others that for all practical purposes, it's the only thing we look at. What they said essentially is, if you're going to tell me that we Christians should do X, that when our niece comes out as gay, or when my sister gets married uh, after having been divorced, if you're going to tell me that this is what we Christians should think and, and do about that, I'm going to tell you, show me. Show me. Where does it say that in the Bible? And so they came to be, this, this, this way of thinking about Scripture came to be called sola scriptura. It's a Latin phrase that means Scripture alone. Now, Scripture alone is actually impossible. One of the reasons is nowhere in the Bible does it give us a list of what is in the Bible. It doesn't tell us which 66 books make up the Bible. So there's a tradition that says these 66 books make up the Bible. It doesn't say Scripture alone in the Bible. So the Reformers knew that. They knew that sola scriptura was impossible, but they were pretty much content with this phrase. It's like, yeah, but for practical purposes, it's Scripture alone. If you come to me and tell me Christians should do this, I'm going to point to the Bible and say, show me. Now, 
Other Christians disagreed. Orthodox Christians disagree. Catholic Christians disagree. And so do Anglicans, and because of Anglicans, Methodists. They disagree about this. What they believe in is something called prima scriptura, or scripture first. They say scripture first, but not only. So, for example, Methodists say that there is something, they they call it the Wesleyan quadrilateral. It's those four items, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. They say that those are the four things you use to understand what God's will is. Now, there's two ways we can look at this. 500 years on, we can look at this one of two ways. We can say, we can say, Christians, they're hopeless. They don't agree on anything. Or we can say, you know what? It looks to me like there's a lot of agreement here. It looks to me like Christians say scripture first. And some say really, really first. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity for us to look at this as a place where even though there was an argument 500 years ago, this is a place where there's great agreement in the church that the first place we look, the first place we seek God's guidance is in Scripture. So what do we do with this? Well, read your Bible. You know, by all means, come to me. You know, I, I, This is what I get paid for. Come to me with, with questions. But when I say something, say, show me. Why? Why should I believe that? But you don't have to do even that. You can look it up yourself. At the time Martin Luther nailed those theses to the door, it was illegal to own a Bible in English. And today, everyone can have one. They're super affordable. You can, they started about $5 for a Bible and they go up to maybe $100 for one with all the bells and whistles. Yes. And? And let me show you, let me show you. So scoot forward to the screenshot. So the good news is there are two Bibles. If you have a smartphone, well, if you don't have a smartphone, we'll pray for you. But um, if you haven't got the iPhone 8 yet, because it costs money, then, um, then we'll pray for, for us too. But, um, but these are both free apps, and uh, version gives you access to a couple of hundred different translations um, about 30 English translations and a whole bunch more in Finnish and Turkish and whatever other language you might want. Bible Gateway is the same way. Um, so those are free. You can get them on your app. If you don't have, if you don't have a smartphone, but you can go to the library and use the um, web interface terminals they've got there, you can surf to BibleGateway.com and do the same thing there online. Again, access to hundreds of Bible translations um, for free because you can read the Bible. And not only that, the scholarship today is is just surpassing. Martin Luther had to figure it out himself. He had to learn Hebrew and Greek and then figure out, how do I translate the Bible into German? Today, every one of those translations, you can't find a translation that was written in the last 50 years that didn't have exemplary scholarship, where people who have made a career out of learning the biblical languages and learning the culture to understand how best to translate the language. So if you're reading something in one translation and you're not sure what that means, you can go to another translation, and they're all going to be pretty trustworthy translations. So you have this is, this is a great time to be put in this place where you can say, I have the opportunity to seek God's guidance, not by going up to the temple, making an offering, telling a priest, hey, what should I do? But by actually seeking God's will for your life, 
for the people you care about by reading the Bible yourself. If you've got some concerns, I don't know if I, I still don't know if I do it. Let me encourage you. Uh, last year we did a class, um, the, what is now the seed class, and it's a, a, a class in spiritual disciplines, how to actually put into practice the things our faith teaches. So prayer and Bible reading and some of the other classic spiritual disciplines. So watch for the next time we have the seed class and, um, we can, we can go into those issues there. But basically I would say start. Start by reading the Bible. Pick up a copy and start reading it. Because, you know, churches are filled with traditions. Have you ever been in a church and not heard the phrase, we've always done it that way? You know, this didn't stop 500 years ago. Churches are made of people, and people make mistakes, and people get set in their ways. And so we believe that Christians are called to always be reforming. In fact, that is the motto of the Presbyterian Church. The Presbyterian Church says we are the Reformed Church ever since Luther 500 years ago, but we are always being reformed according to the Word of God because people like me, we get set in our ways. We think we know what the Bible says about this or about that. And you are part of the priesthood of all believers. So read your Bible, and like Martin Luther, you don't have to nail it on the door of the church, but say, why? Show me. Why, why, why do we believe that? Be a Luther, because the church needs more Luther. Let me inspire you with one more picture. We need more Luthers. We will always need more Luthers. So be a Luther. Read the Bible. Seek God's guidance, not just information from the past, but guidance for the present. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for the Protestant Reformation. Um, We are sorry that our divisions have driven people from the faith. They think Christians can't agree on anything, Lord. And so give us the courage to work even 500 years on for greater and greater visible reconciliation. But Lord, we thank you also that part of that conversation has resulted in a deeper understanding of how you guide us by Scripture. Scripture first, Scripture alone, but Scripture. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach each of us um, to read the scriptures. You would, you would equip us so we can use our apps or our um, web interfaces or even old-fashioned paper, Lord, and we can read the scriptures to seek your will. We pray it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.